0: The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, November 22nd, 1718. I'm Sally Helm. A calm morning in the shallow waters of North Carolina's Outer Banks. Floating off the narrow strip of land that is Ocracoke Island, there's a ship... The Adventure. Its captain is notorious in these parts, and beyond, as a pirate. You might even know his name today. Blackbeard. He and his crew are probably happy that the weather is calm. Because last night, they all got good and drunk. This morning, they're doing their best to sleep it off as the ship bobs gently in the water. But then, they hear a racket nearby. Splashing sounds, thunks, and thuds. Something is afoot. Blackbeard can soon see that two more ships have entered these shallow waters and they've gotten stuck, run aground on the sand. The crews of the Ranger and the Jane are pitching things overboard to try and get themselves afloat. And Blackbeard realizes wait a minute. Those ships are after me. For the crew of the adventure, there's no more time to sleep. They stumble to their posts and try to steer toward the open sea. They make for the mouth of the channel, shooting at the ships behind. But the Jane and the Ranger soon get unstuck, and they follow Blackbeard's ship. Finally, one of them, the Ranger, maneuvers around to block the pirate's path. Blackbeard can see, on the deck of the Jane, a British naval officer. He's Lieutenant Robert Maynard, a grizzled veteran of these waters and their semi-lawless ways, though he's all of 34 years old. Blackbeard calls out that he won't bother the guy, he's not looking for trouble. But Maynard says, I've come for you. I plan to capture you, dead or alive. At that Blackbeard calls for a cup of wine and drinks to Maynard's damnation. Then he fires on the lieutenant's ships and the battle begins. Today, the dread pirate Blackbeard. Why was it so important to British authorities that they hunt this man down? And how did Blackbeard plunder and posture his way to becoming the very model of the 18th century pirate? Nassau, the capital of an island in the Bahamas. Blue water sparkling, palm trees swaying, tropical breeze, and plunder, murder. Bring a ship there, and you'd better watch your back.
2: Nassau became this, some people have called it a pirate republic, although it really didn't have a form of government.
0: Jay Dolan is a history writer with a focus
2: on the sea. I've published 15 different books, most of them with maritime themes.
0: One of those books is about pirates. What got you into the world of pirates?
2: (laughs) Neither of my children had read any of my books, so I figured if I go with pirates, this is my big chance to get them to read one of my books.
0: It's not a bad idea. People have been obsessed with pirates for hundreds of years. British author Charles Johnson wrote a book called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. It flew off the shelves in 1724 and helped establish the myth of the pirate, a romantic figure unmoored from polite society, living beneath his own sail on his own terms. Sure, he robs and murders sometimes, That's just the price of living free. And obviously, in American culture, pirates abound. From early swashbuckling films starring Errol Flynn, who had the impractical habit of carrying a knife in his mouth, to Disney films and animatronic rides with a wisecracking Captain Jack Sparrow.
2: No survivors. And where do the stories come from, I wonder?
0: But Eric J. Dolan's work reveals a grittier side of pirate life. First of all, it was dangerous. There's a reason pirates are often depicted with an eye patch or a peg leg. And also, pirates didn't exist beyond the reach of every rule. Part of the job was a constant adjustment to shifting laws and loyalties. By the early 1700s, there was a fine line between being a pirate and being what was called a privateer. The latter was a safer job title.
2: You have to make a distinction between privateering, real privateering, and piracy. Privateers are private ships that are armed, that are given government permission during times of war to attack enemy ships.
0: This is known as a letter of mark. It's basically a special license to pursue pirate-like activities that had previously been forbidden. If you had one of these, you could attack a ship and bring it back to port. Then, if a court determined you'd sacked an enemy ship, not a friend, its cargo could be sold, and you'd get half the profit.
2: So privateering enabled countries such as England to create a cost-free navy very quickly.
0: In the early 1700s, There's a lot of work for privateers. The War of the Spanish Succession breaks out in 1701. Rival heirs are vying for control of the Spanish Empire, and most of Europe ends up involved, the colonies too. That war goes on for 13 years. But when it's over in 1714, privateers are out of a job. And they can't help but notice that peacetime has brought more trading ships than ever to the seas. Ships full of valuable cargo, just bobbing along. And to men who have experience robbing sailors at Sword Point, those ships look pretty
2: tempting. And a lot of them were in the Caribbean, and they decided, well, I've got this great skill set. I know how to attack ships. Why don't I become a pirate?
0: Blackbeard himself may have been a privateer, and he was definitely a pirate. But documented details about his history are hard to find.
2: Blackbeard truly is, I believe, more myth than man. We know very little about his origin story.
0: Most scholars believe that Blackbeard was originally named Edward Teach, or Thatch, or Tack. And that's pretty much where the agreement, such as it is, ends.
2: There are some people who believe that he was born in Bristol, England. There are other people who believe it was Jamaica or North Carolina. And since no one
0: knows where he was born...
2: We don't know exactly what year he was born.
0: The best estimates put Blackbeard in his 30s when he shows up in the Caribbean as a pirate. 18th century engravings depict him with swords and pistols strapped to his sides, decked out in a tri-cornered hat.
2: We only have a couple of references from people who were plundered... By him, they said that he was tall, skinny, and he had a very black beard. We don't know how long it is. We don't know if it's a ZZ top beard or a short crop beard or exactly what it looked like. We do know
0: that this is when his legend begins to spread in stories passed from one person to another.
2: One time, he was at a table with his quartermaster, Israel Hands, and underneath the table, he Used his pistol to shoot Israel hands in the knee.
0: Stories that
2: aren't all fully trustworthy. Now, that's not a very good leadership quality. Also, it is totally implausible to think that you would shoot your quartermaster, one of the most important people on the pirate ship, in the knee just to show that, hey, I could shoot anybody whenever I want to.
0: Stories with salacious but dubious details.
2: Another story about him is that he had 14 wives, and at one point that he used to prostitute his wives out to his men every night after he had had his way with her. Well, there's no evidence whatsoever that he was ever married
0: and stories about nonsensical intimidation tactics.
2: Charles Johnson in 1724 wrote a lengthy account about him, and one of the things he said is that when Blackbeard would go into battle, he would attach lit matches to the ends of his hair or put them right underneath his cap, the smoke, that came from those matches was supposed to envelop his face and make him even more fearsome than he would have otherwise have appeared. The only problem with that is two things. First, there's not a single record of any individual having been attacked by Blackbeard of him coming at them with flames shooting out either from the tips of his hair or underneath his cap. And think about it, rationally or practically, Who would want to go into battle with an open flame near your very flammable hair? These
0: accounts grow more colorful with time. Do you have a sense of why those larger-than-life stories sort of took off in his lifetime? Was it good for him to have people think that he was this fearsome guy who might just shoot you in the kneecap for the hell of it?
2: Oh, absolutely. One of the secret truths about piracy is that most pirates were not exceptionally violent people. Every once in a while, they came up against a merchant ship that put up a fight. And yes, they may have killed a number of people on board the other ship, but that was sort of necessary to maintain their brand identity as these fearsome individuals on the waves. But really what happened is, by virtue of having attacked a small number of merchant ships, they developed an outsized reputation that helped all pirates. It sort of floated all boats because most merchantmen would immediately surrender when they saw the Jolly Roger or the black flag atop the pirate mast because they had heard stories about what happened to those who had resisted. So it absolutely helped Blackbeard to have this fearsome reputation.
0: To colonial officials, Blackbeard was an outrage. Privateers raiding ships during the War of the Spanish Succession, that was one thing. They could be controlled by leaders on land and give them part of the spoils. But pirates? No one controlled pirates. That made them dangerous. And it gave the pirates a reason to seek out a haven far beyond the reach of the law.
2: The pirate hangout in Nassau in the Bahamas was so important because pirates throughout the entire North Atlantic— in England and in the American colonies were persona non grata.
0: Nassau is crawling with personas non grata, with cutthroats, mercenaries, and thieves. And some of the most cunning have formed themselves into the Flying Gang, headed up by Benjamin Hornigold. By 1717, he's a seasoned pirate and a powerful figure in the Caribbean.
2: So when Blackbeard arrives in Nassau, Hornigold is already the big cheese there. And from what we can gather from the history, Blackbeard quickly became a favorite of Hornigold's, joined this flying gang, which was just an assemblage of ships and pirates who would go out from Nassau and attack shipping throughout the Caribbean.
0: Hornigold names Blackbeard his second-in-command meaning that Blackbeard is now a major player in the loose-knit band of marauders that prowl the West Indies.
2: And while he was in Nassau, another pirate showed up that would be very important in his life, a guy named Steed Bonnet.
0: Bonnet would come to be called the Gentleman Pirate. One drawing depicts him strolling around in a finely tailored greatcoat sporting a powdered wig that probably weighed like five pounds. And he had actually been an aristocrat.
2: For reasons that are not exactly clear, he decided to give up his cushy life and become a pirate and build his own pirate sloop, the Revenge.
0: Some say it was marriage troubles, others that it was some kind of breakdown. Whatever the reason, Bonnet craved a life of adventure on the sea. Though
2: the Revenge was built for comfort. He had the captain's cabin lined with bookcases because he didn't want to leave his patrician life 100% behind. And he took his own personal library on board the ship, thinking, no doubt, that he would have plenty of time, leisure time, to read his books when he wasn't out pillaging other ships.
0: (laughs) While Blackbeard sails the Caribbean with the Flying Gang, Bonnet plunders the east coast of the American colonies, raiding merchant ships from Long Island to South Carolina. But on his way to Nassau, he foolishly takes on a Spanish man-of-war battleship. The skirmish kills dozens of his men and leaves Bonnet himself seriously wounded. Half dead and defeated, Bonnet and his ship limp back to port.
2: When Bonnet came into Nassau with the revenge and he was injured and the ship was injured, his men were already starting to lose confidence in him. Despite the grumblings
0: of his crew, Bonnet refuses to leave the revenge. But he is convinced to give control of the ship to Blackbeard.
2: You basically have Bonnet being deposed in favor of Blackbeard, although it appears that he agreed to this in part because he was still recuperating. So perhaps he viewed this as the only alternative to being just left on land or marooned somewhere as to hand everything over to Blackbeard and stay on the ship.
0: Blackbeard now has a formidable vessel to call his own. Under his command, the Revenge is constantly on the move, never staying in the same place for more than two days. And it loots no fewer than 10 ships. If you'd trained a spyglass on the Revenge, you would have seen Blackbeard toward the bow, barking orders to the crew. And back toward the stern would be Steed Bonnet the Gentleman Pirate, patting past in his wig.
2: People who were captured by Blackbeard and briefly spent time on the revenge noticed this kind of strange-looking pirate wandering around the main deck reading books (laughs) in a nightgown.
0: Eventually, Blackbeard and Bonnet sail back to Nassau, fresh off their victories, more powerful than ever. Blackbeard has acquired several ships that he's organized into his own version of the flying gang. He even has a new, even bigger flagship. There's essentially a small armada under his control, and his most daring deeds are yet to come. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. May 1718. Blackbird and his men have left Nassau once more and sailed into the port of Charlestown, South Carolina, which will become known as
2: Charleston. Charleston at the time was one of the most important ports in the colonies, the largest port. Blackbeard
0: prepares his men to blockade the port. Stop any ships coming or going. It's a very ambitious plan, one that few pirates could even attempt.
2: He had four vessels of varying sizes and probably close to 400 men under his Command, which was by far the most powerful pirate force during the golden age of piracy.
0: What would the blockade have looked like physically in the Charleston Harbor?
2: It's relatively a narrow area. And if you had four ships and they were spread out a bit and you had spyglasses, you would have a pretty good ability to see any ship whatsoever that was trying to exit the port of Charleston. And when they were trying to exit the port of Charleston, they still would have been miles off. So Blackbeard
0: and his men watch and wait. They end up capturing six ships that are just going about their business, and word begins to spread. Nobody in, nobody out. The famed pirate Blackbeard is at their doorstep.
2: The minute that the people in the port realized that Blackbeard was out there, nobody tried to stir. It was more ships coming from beyond, from London, or from New York, that had no knowledge of Blackbeard lurking there that might be ensnared in his trap.
0: The crew takes stock of their spoils, which are disappointing.
2: He only gets about 1,500 pounds worth of gold and pieces of eight, as well as various provisions and a lot of clothes. But he decides to use these vessels and these hostages as pawns to blackmail the governor of South Carolina.
0: Blackbeard keeps his ships in the harbor for six days while an entire city holds its breath. What will the pirate demand? Gold,
2: tobacco, men? He sends some of his men into Charleston and they tell Governor Robert Johnson that what they want before releasing these vessels, and these prisoners is they want a medicine chest.
0: Medicine. It seems that during their journey from the Caribbean, many of Blackbeard's men had fallen ill. They need the medicine to treat syphilis and other diseases. Blackbeard says if they don't get that chest, they'll kill every last hostage. Governor Johnson takes the deal.
2: They sent it out, and Blackbeard was true to his word. He released the vessels. He released the prisoners. Many of them were naked because they had been stripped of all their clothes. And Blackbeard and the rest of his men departed. Why
0: doesn't Charleston take a firmer stand against him? Why do they kind of just let him come in and get what he wants and leave?
2: I'm sure that Governor Johnson thought, this is wonderful. They probably made Blackbeard out to be this incredibly fearsome force, and perhaps he was, But he said, I'm gonna save my port, get those hostages back, and all they want in return is a medicine chest worth about 400 pounds. Yep, that's what he wants. And when he gets it, Blackbeard
0: sails away. He's just put an entire American town on lockdown, subjected it to his whims, then slipped away clean. But he's about to have some problems. The English Crown has decided that it's time to crack down on these pirates, stop their attacks on the trading routes between Britain and its American colonies. Toward that end, a North Carolina official floats an offer.
2: Both Blackbeard and Steve Bonnet had heard that the governor had issued a blanket pardon for all pirates if they turned themselves in.
0: The two pirates are tempted. It's a chance to walk away with their freedom and their loot. Bonnet finally takes the pardon and leaves on the revenge. Blackbeard watches him go, then moves his treasure to his remaining sloop and christens it The Adventure. His next move is to sail to Bath, the capital of North Carolina, and the home of Governor Charles Eden. There, Blackbeard and Eden have a closed-door meeting, and the pirate emerges with a pardon of his own.
2: Some people thought, "Well, maybe he's going to go on straight and narrow." Other people think that he was just in collusion with Governor Eden and the local customs collector Tobias Knight, and perhaps that was the case.
0: Blackbeard doesn't go straight for long.
2: As with many pirates, like dogs to their vomits, as Charles Johnson wrote in 1724. They ultimately revert to their old ways. And Blackbeard and his men, they were unable to resist the lure of the hunt. The adventure set sail
0: for the Atlantic.
2: They found two French ships, the Rose Emily and the Golden Fleece, near Bermuda. And they attacked. And they captured both of them. Blackbeard does what
0: he's done so many times before. Takes the loot. In this case, tons of cocoa and sugar, which means that he's broken his agreement with Governor Eaton. That's a problem. So he comes back to Bath with a cover story.
2: Four of Blackbeard's men sign affidavits claiming that they had discovered the French ship abandoned at sea. It was abandoned.
0: We just took all this sugar and cocoa out of an otherwise empty vessel. A flimsy story, probably doesn't fool anyone it almost definitely doesn't fool Governor Eden or his customs collector, Tobias Knight.
2: It strains credulity to think that Eden and Knight did not know what Blackbeard was up to. And they were in a tough spot because the town of Bath, North Carolina, was very small, a couple hundred people. And you had these pirates at your doorstep, although they were Reduced in number, they still were fearsome men, and they probably could have taken over the whole town if they had wanted to.
0: So the officials look the other way, for their citizens' sake, and maybe in exchange for some perks.
2: Later on, some of the sugar and cocoa is found in Tobias Knight's barn.
0: Once again, Blackbeard gets out of a tough spot. But this is all in North Carolina a relatively poor and underpopulated colony where the stakes for this kind of crime are pretty low. Governor Eaton feels like he can't rein Blackbeard in. He'll lose. But the prosperous and powerful neighboring state of Virginia has a governor who feels differently. His name is Alexander Spotswood.
2: Well, a lot of people along the coast knew that Blackbeard was back in North Carolina and was on Ocracoke Island, so Governor Alexander Spotswood of Virginia, who had a long-standing hatred of pirates. Why did he have a long-standing hatred?: He came to the colonies as a military man, and he was a lieutenant colonel by the time that he was appointed a governor of Virginia in 1710. He harbored a deep hatred of pirates, just like the English government harbored a deep hatred of pirates. It was just in his being.
0: And Blackbeard is his number one enemy. Spotswood has watched him wreak havoc in the colonies for years. And he's like, that whole story about the ships floating along with sugar and cocoa just there for the taking, that's obviously a lie.
2: He doesn't believe for a minute that this ship was found abandoned on the open ocean. He is absolutely certain that Blackbeard has gone back to his own ways, and this causes grave concern to Spotswood because Virginia has a vibrant community largely based on tobacco, as well as some other crops, and he fears that Blackbeard and other pirates are gonna use Ocracoke, sort of like Nassau, but Nassau North, as a stronghold from which to launch attacks all along the coast, including attacks on Virginian commerce.
0: Spotswood decides to take matters into his own hands.
2: Using his own money, Governor Spotswood either purchased or hired the use of two sloops, not very large ships, the Ranger and the slightly larger Jane, and about 50 to 60 British sailors headed by a guy named Robert Maynard.
0: Lieutenant Robert Maynard. Spotswood sends him out with a group of armed men to hunt Blackbeard down, Maynard spots the adventure off North Carolina's Outer Banks. But you may remember, as his ship is closing in, it briefly gets stuck on a sandbar. This gives Blackbeard's hungover crew a chance to see what's happening and make a break for the mouth of the channel. But Maynard manages to sail around the adventure and block its way. He's now within shouting distance of the pirate he hates and he takes the chance to tell Blackbeard why he's there. I will have you dead or alive. It's then that Blackbeard calls for that cup of wine.
2: Blackbeard drank damnation to Maynard and his men, and he told them that he expected no quarter, meaning that he's not going to surrender to these two British sloops. In other words, Blackbeard
0: is vowing to fight to the death. Maynard's, or
2: his own. As soon as the talking was over, Blackbeard took full advantage of his superior firepower, and he used a booming broadside to shoot partridge and swan shot, which is basically a spray of small lead pellets onto the decks of the Ranger and the Jane.
0: Some number of Maynard's men are killed instantly. It's obvious that Blackbeard's cannons give him a major advantage. But this battle will have one more twist, because Maynard has a plan.
2: Now, Maynard used some deception very, very effectively. He didn't want to expose his men to another broadside, because he knew that was going to be a real problem. Maynard orders the pilot and a
0: midshipman to stay on deck and watch Blackbeard's movements. To the rest, he yells, follow me. As the smoke clears, Blackbeard orders his ship to pull up alongside the nearly empty deck of the Jane. Except for the lapping of water and the creaking of wooden hulls, all is quiet. Blackbeard thinks that Maynard and most of his crew must be lying below decks, wounded or dead. So he boards the Jane, flush with his victory. But Maynard and his surviving men are
2: lying in wait below. Maynard, who's standing at the top of the stairs, gets the word from the pilot, the pirates are here. And a dozen of his Marines rush up, and there's a melee that ensues for about six minutes. There are shots fired at close range, grunts, screams, groans, knives, sabers, anything in this hand-to-hand battle.
0: At the end of the fight, Blackbeard lies dead.
2: Maynard, who is a relatively laconic reporter of events, simply said that Blackbeard fell with five bullet shots in him and 20 dismal cuts in several parts of his body.
0: Maynard then crowns his victory by placing on the bowsprit of his ship, Blackbeard's severed head. This is meant as a humiliation, but it will ultimately add to the legend of
2: Blackbeard. The story is that Blackbeard's headless body was then pitched into the murky waters of Pamlico Sound, where legend has it, it took a few laps around the Jane before sinking out of sight.
0: After his death, Blackbeard's head sits on display at the entrance of Chesapeake Bay, a warning to other pirates.
2: Another truth of this era of piracy that people often want to conveniently forget as the Golden Age came to a close in about 1726 is that more than 400 pirates were hanged at various places in the Atlantic on both sides of the ocean. So a lot of pirate lives, even Blackbeard's included, were relatively short and often ended at the end of a rope.
0: One of that 400 is Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate. Like Blackbeard, he'd returned to piracy after his pardon. About a month after Blackbeard's death, Bonnet is hanged in Charleston. But not every pirate dies at the hands of the state. Benjamin Hornigold switches sides to become a pirate hunter. Charles Johnson reports that Hornigold chases down his former comrades until 1719, when he dies in a shipwreck during a hurricane. Soon after, the British governor of the Bahamas expels the remaining outlaws from Nassau. The golden age of pirates begins passing into memory. And yet, the legend of Blackbeard only grows.
2: When he was finally vanquished and then killed in such a dramatic way, it was covered in local newspapers and it was talk of the town in the pubs. And in fact, Benjamin Franklin, who's only 12 years old at the time and was working for his older brother, James, who was a printer in Boston, James had encouraged Benjamin to write ballads or stories about singular events of the day.
0: So he says to his little brother, write something about Blackbeard. And Benjamin does. The original text of this ballad hasn't survived, but there's a stanza that some historians believe belongs to Benjamin Franklin. It calls Blackbeard by his given name, Teach.
2: It says, when the bloody fight was over, we're informed by a letter writ Teach's head was made a cover to the jack staff of the ship. Thus they sailed to Virginia.
1: And when they the story told, how they killed the pirates many, they a the from young and old. How they killed the pirates many, they the plus from young and old.
0: That version of the ballad was recorded in 1992, 274 years after Blackbeard's death. It's proof that Blackbeard and the golden age of piracy still live in our imaginations. In Franklin's day, the applause was still for the pirate killers. But today, long after the real threat of piracy has faded, Go to a movie about that era and pay attention to who on screen gets the applause. It's probably not a character like Maynard. It's probably the pirates.
2: It's the world against us and us against the world. Those of you in favor of these articles, raise your right hands and say aye! Aye.
0: Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Eric J. Dolan, author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. This episode was produced by Rebecca Nolan and Corinne Wallace. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.